I will never forget the time in third grade when I tried to cheat on a test. It was a true-false test, and all the questions were written out on the left-hand side of this paper, and down the right-hand side, there was this column where we were supposed to answer with a large T or F. And as I went through that test, I was excited because I knew all of the answers, except one. It was one question that stumped me. I was clueless. I couldn't even make a good guess. And I realized if I could get that one question right, I could get a perfect score. And that goal tempted me. It lured me. And I was sitting right behind Steve, the brightest guy in the class. And I thought, you know, the way that Steve has that paper on his desk, that column of answers over on the right, if I just kind of can crane my head around, I might be able to get a peek and maybe figure out the answer to the question that's got me stumped. And so I engaged in this elaborate charade. I put down my pencil, and I stretched out my arms and gave a big pretend yawn. And as I was yawning, I, oh, and I was craning my head around, and I kind of went like this and tried to peek over Steve's shoulder, and suddenly I heard the voice of Mrs. Palmer, our teacher, boom out, Bruce, stop cheating! <laughs> Get over here! The whole class watched me walk over to her desk, and I could feel my face turning bright red with embarrassment. And she gave me a short, stern lecture, and my grade was marked down, and I returned to my seat full of shame. I was ashamed of what I'd done, and I hated that feeling, and I resolved never to cheat on a test again. Shame can be a powerful motivator. Now, what's interesting is that shame was not part of God's original plan for humanity. As we saw last week, God created a world free of shame, and then our ancestors messed it up. God laid out a pathway for Adam and Eve, but they decided we know better than God. So they ignored his counsel. They made different choices than what he wanted them to. They engaged in sinful behavior, and the result was shame. And then they tried to cover up their shame by refusing to accept responsibility for their actions and by pointing the finger of blame elsewhere. Adam and Eve introduced the shame and blame game that every generation continues to play. Here's something I find fascinating, though. Even though shame was not part of God's original plan, it actually can be useful in our very broken world because shame can, can sear our conscience. And if we don't respond by blaming others, then shame can motivate us to change our ways. It sure did for me on that day in third grade. And yet, as powerful as shame is, there always are some people in this world who are shameless. They don't see the harm that comes from their attitudes and actions. And in fact, they've bottled up their conscience. And as a result, they feel no shame. And so they have no desire to change. 
Now, there certainly are people outside the community of faith who live a shameless life. Sadly, though, sometimes it's the people of God. Sometimes it's the people who should know better who wind up ignoring the potent power of shame. And that very thing happened among the people of God in the days of the prophet Jeremiah. At that time, the Israelites, God's own chosen people, largely were ignoring God. They forgot who God is and what he'd done for them. They forgot what God expects of his children. And as a result, they became shameless. So God speaks to them through Jeremiah. He issues a word of warning and a word of hope that every generation needs to hear. Let's listen to what God says in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, starting in verses 13 through 15. God speaks and says, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. This passage is part of a much longer conversation between God and Jeremiah. And throughout that conversation, God gives warnings and he gives exhortations. And Jeremiah listens to God and then he passes God's words on to the people. But unfortunately, God's people aren't listening. And even worse, they react to the very words of God with scorn. In fact, they mock Jeremiah and they ridicule what he has to say. Now, why would they do that? Because, as God points out here in verse 13, everyone is focused on personal gain. And that is far more important to them than living a life of faith. And so in that society, whether people have a little or whether they have a lot, they're all consumed by their desire for more. More money, more possessions, more power, more influence. And they're consumed by that because they've forgotten who God is and what he's done for them and what he expects of his people. And they even value deceit more than honesty if it will allow them to accumulate more of whatever it is that they want. And sadly, this often is the way of the world. Back when I worked in business, I once had a boss who was ruthless. And he shamelessly stepped on people to work his way up the corporate ladder. He shaved the truth with customers in order to get them to buy our products. And whatever he did, he always fell back on this catchphrase. Oh, it's just business. In his mind, dishonesty, manipulation, ruthlessness, all of those things were acceptable in the pursuit of personal and corporate gain. 
In a similar vein, I once had a friend who was selling an old car on Craigslist. And he knowingly covered up the fact that this car had several mechanical defects that would not be immediately obvious to a buyer. I asked him, why are you doing this? I mean, wouldn't you feel bad? Wouldn't you feel cheated if the roles were reversed? And you bought a car like this and then after the sale was complete, discovered all the problems? And he said, yes, but I'm not buying, I'm selling. That's how business works. And that may be the way of the world for some, but it's not the way of God. God makes it clear here that he wants peace between people, and that won't happen if we're out for ourselves at the expense of others. And we never can be at peace with other people until we experience peace with God and let him heal our deep spiritual wounds, as God says here in this passage. And God even appoints some people to point the way so that we can experience spiritual healing. And who is it that he appoints? The religious leaders. But in this case, they can't fulfill their role because they're just as selfish as everyone else. Too many prophets and priests in that day are practicing deceit in order to accumulate more money and possessions and power and influence. And instead of trying to lead people into the presence of God, the only place where people can experience peace and healing, they're caught up in greedy ambition. Every time I read a passage like this, it's a reminder to do my own spiritual inventory. I need to continually remember who God is, what he's done for me and for us, and what he expects of me within our community of faith. And I need to focus first and foremost on trying to be an agent of spiritual healing so that we all can experience peace with God and peace with each other. And I want to encourage all of the leaders in this church, our ministry staff, our elders, our deacons, our ABF teachers and life group leaders, if you have any kind of leadership role within this church, I want to invite you to do a spiritual inventory based on what God says here. We need to ask, is our highest priority to lead people toward peace with God? Or are we in any area of life placing our personal agenda ahead of the needs of God's people? And obviously, this doesn't just apply to leaders, it applies to everyone here. Because if we forget who God is, and if we forget what God's done for us, and then we don't live as He asks us to live, we're going to fall pretty far. We can reach the point that these Israelites reached, where they had no shame. I find it hard to believe, as God says here, it got so bad in that day that the people forgot how to blush. They were shameless. And why should they blush? Since in their mind they'd done nothing wrong. Whatever they're doing, oh, everybody does it. It's just business. And they've shut down their consciences so they can indulge their own desires. They are repeating the foundational mistake of Adam and Eve and choosing the wrong path, the path that leads away from God. 
God is painting a tragic picture here. And yet all hope is not gone. One of the great things about our God is that even when he issues a message of warning, even when he issues a message of judgment, there still is hope. There still is an invitation to turn things around. And God spells that out, that invitation here for us in verse 16. This is what the Lord says, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. Oh, what an invitation, rest for your souls. That's what I need, that's what you need. That's what heals our spiritual wounds. God invites us into his presence so we can be at peace with him and with others. And what God offers here can be ours if we simply get on the right path. And yet, as God makes it clear, we're not going to find it by accident. We don't just stumble across the right path because life is filled with crossroads that lead in every direction. There are roads that lead to other gods. There are roads that lead to greedy materialism where we become consumed by the desire for more money and more possessions. There are roads that lead to political tribalism where we become consumed by the desire to vanquish our political enemies because our side is good and we know their side is evil. And there are roads that lead to hedonism where we become consumed by the desires of the body, eating and drinking and drugs and sex. Our culture has so many roads to choose from. How do we find the right one? We have to stop. We have to stand. And we have to look for it. We have to be intentional about finding the way of God so the crossroads do not lead us in the wrong direction. I used to belong to a four-wheel drive club, and we'd take our Jeeps out into the desert for some serious off-roading. And one time in the Mojave Desert, we were driving down this very narrow little canyon, and suddenly it branched out, and we were in the midst of this huge valley, and it was absolutely crisscrossed by tire tracks. The trail that we were on had disappeared because we were at a crossroads. Our path was obliterated, so we didn't know where to go. And we could have charged off blindly, said, oh, let's pick this trail, see where it leads. We probably would have gotten lost. As a side note, a friend of mine says, a true off-roader never is lost. You are just temporarily disoriented. <laughs> he said he once was temporarily disoriented for three days. <laughs> but we didn't want to get lost by following the wrong crossroad. So what do we do? We drove up to the top of the nearest hill parked our vehicles, got out, grabbed our binoculars and looked. We looked at the crossroads. We looked beyond the crossroads. We searched until we found the right path. It took some time. It took some effort. But by searching, we found the good path that would enable us to reach our destination. And that's what God wants you and I to do in our spiritual lives. And if we take the time to look, God's path is clearly marked out for us. God himself describes it this way for us in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. 
Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. The Bible says this same thing in a variety of ways in many different places. But this is the path to love God and put Him at the center of life. And when Jesus came and walked upon the earth, He reiterated this foundational command. He said, yes, this is the path. Love God completely. And then Jesus enlarged that path for us by taking these words from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus put those two together and He said, this is the greatest commandment of all. To love God completely and then to love others. This is the good way. And it's an invitation to a seamless life where we don't take the spiritual piece of life and kind of segregate it off to some little private area. It's an invitation to a life where we don't just do church on Sunday mornings and then live however we like the rest of the week. Instead, we invite God into our daily activities. We talk about faith during the week with our children and family and friends and with other people that God sends into our path. We look to see where God is at work in our world and we strive to join Him in what He is doing. This is the ancient path. This is where God wants us to go and as we follow that path, we will find rest for our souls. And we will find that path and stay on that path if we continually look for it at every crossroads that we encounter in this life. But we have to be intentional. We have to stand and look before we ever head down the road. We need to do some planning so that we know what direction to head. As I was pondering this passage and praying about it during the week, I was struck by the fact that you and I spend a lot of time planning things, don't we? We plan things in our work. We plan our recreation. Some of you probably take a lot of time to plan a personal budget. Spring break is coming up, and if you're part of, if you as an individual or if you're part of a family whose life revolves around the academic calendar, then you're going to have a week off, and I'll bet you're planning right now what you're going to do with that extra time off. And we should do the same thing with the spiritual dimension of life. Why not plan some times to read the Bible and pray? Let's plan some times when we can demonstrate the love of God in specific ways to the people that we encounter during the week. Let's plan some things that deepen our experience of God so we can find rest for our souls. Next Sunday is the start of Easter week when we commemorate the final week of Jesus' life on earth. And here's a suggestion. Why don't you and I take some time this coming week to plan what we might do the following week, Easter week, to make that a special spiritual season in our lives. For example, during Easter week, we might take some time to fast in some way. We might devote some extra time to prayer. We might look for ways to perform random acts of kindness to strangers 
as a way to be the presence of Jesus in our world. You see, we can plan some things that help us stay on the good path. This path that's focused on the love of God and the love of others. The path that leads to peace with God and peace with others and leads to rest for our weary souls. God is extending an amazing, wonderful invitation here and He wants His children to embrace it. Why wouldn't we? Well, unfortunately, some people have hard hearts. Some people refuse the invitation. They turn their backs on God and express no interest in what God is offering as we see next. But you said, we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. It it breaks my heart that some people in Jeremiah's day were so committed to following their own path that they refused to follow the path of God. And yet, as hard as their hearts are, God does not give up. He speaks to the people through his prophets like Jeremiah. They're the watchmen, and they're issuing a call that is loud and clear like a trumpet fanfare. And yet in response to that loud, clear call, people who have no shame, people who have forgotten how to blush, will have zero interest in changing. And they won't change because they see no need to change. It's tragic. It is tragic as it is, the worst is yet to come. Because these shameless people ignore their destructive behavior during the week, and then they act as if they can impress God and earn God's favor by showing up to worship and going through the motions, as God says in verses 18 through 20. Therefore, hear you nations, you who are witnesses, observe what will happen to them. Here you earth, I'm bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they've not listened to my words and have rejected my law. Listen to this. What do I care about incense from Sheba or sweet calamus from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. God's been speaking here about people who've forgotten who he is. They've forgotten about his goodness. They've forgotten what he expects. They've become shameless. And greed and deceit are a regular part of their lives. And yet, they still bring their burnt offerings to the temple. They spend money to buy pricey incense and spices to enrich their worship experience and make it more beautiful. And God says, it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable because worship and Sacrifice and offerings are pointless when we ignore God's invitation to change. When we just go through the motions, the worship service becomes a charade rather than a meaningful encounter with the living God. And we need to reflect on these words because just as it was possible for the ancient Israelites to make a sacrifice for sin without meaning it, we too can find ourselves just going through the motions. We can show up in church, we can put money in the offering, we can share in communion, we can mouth the words as we sing, 
But if our hearts are far from God, then, then it's all rather pointless. If we come into worship on Sunday morning and we do it as a matter of habit or as a time to impress God, or as an opportunity for a little Christian entertainment, then we miss the point. Worship is about meeting God. That's why we're here. We're here to meet God so we can continually be changed. We're here to open up our lives to Him so He can show us where we've been tempted, where we might be taking the wrong path so He can make a course correction and we can stay on the right path. And that's why worship ultimately is a matter of the heart. We have to bring the right heart to God in worship. I had to learn this the hard way. I've experienced worship in a variety of churches over the years, and I used to be very critical. Because I would sit in a church, and I would discover that the worship was not up to my lofty standards. They didn't sing the songs I liked. Oh, those two singers were off-key on the harmony part there. The preacher didn't tackle the topics that I wanted him to talk about. Eventually, I realized that, that if I went to church with that kind of attitude, I was just as bad as the ancient Israelites that God is talking to here. I was looking at the outward stuff. And I've learned that I can worship just about anywhere, with any order of service, with any group of believers, when I approach God with the right attitude in my heart. Worship is about your heart my heart. By the way, if you've been around here for a while, you know that our music ministry leader moved on last fall. And we've been looking for a new leader to hire. We've had no success. There's actually a huge shortage of people available right now. There actually are scores of churches in our area that are looking for someone to lead their music ministry, and they're not finding anyone. And so while we look and pray and wait, I just want to thank the volunteers who give so generously of their time and their talent to serve God by using music to help lead us into the presence of God each week. And as they lead us in music, as we share in communion, as we pray, as we dig into the Bible together, let's rem remember that how we worship is up to us. We need to make the choice to worship from the heart because worship is an opportunity to meet the living God and to let him continue to change us so that we can stay on the right path, that ancient path, that ancient path that never changes even though culture changes. The ancient path that leads to peace with God, peace with others, and rest for our souls. Now this is a hard passage. There's some strong words of warning here. But there's also a message of hope. There's a message of hope because all of us come to God with sick souls and God wants to make us well. And I can't make you well. And neither can anyone else in this church. Only God can spiritually heal us. And that happens when we turn to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and we follow his lead.
And as we follow Jesus, we become sensitized to the difference between good and bad so that we don't forget how to blush. Followers of Jesus do not ignore the healthy sense of shame that God can use to serve as a check on our conscience and lead us farther along His path. Followers of Jesus remember who God is. They remember His goodness to us and they remember what He expects of us. And the more closely we follow Jesus, the better equipped we are to stand at the crossroads and diligently look for the good path, to not be led astray by a crossroad, but to stay on that path of loving God, loving others, a path that leads to peace and that heals our weary souls. So here's a question, are you at peace this morning? Are you at peace with God and other members of his family? Is your soul at rest with God or are you weary? If you need someone to talk with, if you need someone to pray with you, I want to invite you to make your way over to the prayer corner at the end of the service. We'll have a couple of elders there and they'll be happy to come alongside you because more than anything, our elders want to help all of us find the good path. If you've never stepped out on that path and you're looking for it, our elders can help you find it. And if you're a follower of Jesus and struggling to stay on the path, our elders can help you stay there because the elders of this church are good shepherds and they want the best for all of us. They want to help each and every one of us find rest for our souls. And so there is a wonderful invitation here. The question is, how will you and I respond?